0: Welcome back to Tea Time at Birkin. We will continue in the same fashion that we have for the last few days. So we look forward to the questions and let's have the first one.
1: Ajahn, our first question will be a live question from Mark S. in Falkland, Canada. Thank you, Ajahn. I have a question um, with regards to the cultivation of meta. Which of these two following conditions require the greater effort um, to accept and overcome through practice? Um, The body's relationship to physically unpleasant feelings or the mind's relationship to emotionally unpleasant feelings?
0: Yes, good. This is something that people need to do just for their own clarity is to separate bodily feelings mental what one mental feelings which are we would say emotional feelings and they can both be uh, difficult depending on the on the severity of the bodily feelings but primarily the most skill involved is dealing with emotional uh, structures so to what's happening here is that you're attempting to replace and sustain a kind of ongoing feeling of goodwill friendliness and what is it that you're replacing with that you're replacing anger and greed uh, irritability all kinds of uh, negative emotions including um, sadness grief depression and also um, unsettled ex- uh, over energetic experiences agitation uh, what we call bipolar tendencies. Everybody this this uh idea about bipolar, you see this in uh some individuals, it's very exaggerated. The teeter totter swings from ex- extreme um ener- energies <clears throat> and heightened feelings to heavy depression. But everybody, all normal people have some something like that, a little bit of a swing in that direction. Meta Uh, can stabilize that and you can end up operating on a smooth continuous energy and so it it overcomes the primary the five hindrances and produces a kind of a continuing ongoing mental health just pure what we would call being mentally and emotionally healthy and don't overlook the idea when we look for the, the feeling of loving-kindness, the emotional feeling of loving-kindness, whenever you're feeling really well, uh, al- awake, um, lucid, without fear, without uh, concern, without greed, without anger, that, those are characteristics of uh, loving-kindness. Uh, as far as the, the feelings in the body, are another practice again and I talked about this a couple of days ago that the practice of loving kindness can be a way of overcoming bodily pain and I maybe somebody in this this audience will become a, a loving kindness therapist <laughs> just for people who are have physical pain it would be great service I've I've asked lots I've told lots of people Go and organize some sort of group, especially if you happen to have the right kind of voice and the right kind of demeanor, uh, to just people with chronic pain in their body. All they have to do is come twice a week or even a few days, day after day, and have to listen to the voice of another, talk them into loving kindness. And they they might be in wheelchairs, they might even have to be lying down, etc. So... This can be done as a kind of a group therapy that the voice of another pulls them into this feeling of profound goodwill and can, that can soothe and give uh, ease to types of physical feelings that that even strong anal- analgesics and, and painkillers can't actually touch. Sometimes these strong painkillers are—they start start to not work after a while, and that's a horror for people. They can't get out of pain. So this is something very, very potent. I, you know, from a scientific type of explanation, there are chemicals within your body that are more potent than any uh, any kind of painkillers, and they can be released through the right induction. So it's a trick that you everybody should work on, and everybody should notice. You might not notice it because you're walking. If you're feeling a feeling of abundant loving kindness, goodwill for the world, please carefully examine the feelings in your body and notice that the body is either absence; it simply hardly has any substance to it, has hardly has any weight to it and the feelings are neutral or flooded with pleasant feelings. So this is something that, this is what the Buddha talks about very specifically. This is a, this is a, a strong therapy for physical pain and also emotional distress. Uh, emotional distress is, is worse, uh, but uh, take your, you know, physical pain what we want to do is not add anything to physical pain. so this is the, the simile of the, the Buddha gives us uh, a man has is shot with an, an arrow. And then he does a strange thing. He takes another arrow and jabs it into him. <laughs> what is the first arrow? Physical pain. What's the second arrow? Emotional distress over the physical pain so he's saying we have a choice about how we feel about physical pain don't make it worse you already have one arrow in you don't stick another one in that is why me why this pain i can't stand this i hate this i i don't want pain this kind of i'm so sad this kind of uh aggravation of the pain is unnecessary and and harmful. So loving-kindness allows you to switch the mode of the emotions. When you have physical pain, you can switch the mode of emotion, not add to it at all. And if if you can generate loving-kindness deeply enough, the pain itself disappears. And it can be quite astonishing. And many, many meditators have reported this, that they're... They're in pain of some sort, even because of holding one posture for a long time, and then suddenly it, it disappears. And it's a shocking experience. The pain just disappears. The mind is capable of releasing a, some sort of painkiller that sweeps all the bodily feeling away. So this is, both of them are challenges to the ordinary person, but this is why I would say that everybody needs to practice ahead of time. Don't wait for the, (laughs) don't wait to get dragged out of a traffic accident in the back of an ambulance before you start practicing this. (laughs) But at least, having gone through a 10-day loving-kindness retreat, having heard these words many times, I I hope you go over these, the talks and uh, the Tea Times Uh, again, uh, all of you who are listening, so that you are actually prepared because it's highly likely, I would say it's almost impossible to get through life without having these kind of situations where strong physical uh, discomfort and pain comes to you in one way or another. And then, of course, challenging emotional situations. So this is medicine for both of those. It would be very, very important for you to actually um carefully consider this and invest heavily some time into the cultivation of this this is the has a fantastic um use in in real life this is not an esoteric thing this is uh, how you deal with the pain of real life both bodily pain and emotional pain so do Do practice, get your skills together. We do all kinds, we we train as lifeguards, we train as how to swim, because somebody's gonna fall in the water sooner or later, you gotta know what to do. (laughs) Uh, So, metta, loving kindness, is a profound uh, medical art uh, and emotional art. It's a combination of psychiatry and, and physical medicine. Thank you for that question, and I hope that is seared into everybody's mind that they really must do this ahead of time, so that they can do it when the when the when the pain does come.
1: Ajahn, our next question is from Shrima W in Calgary, Canada. Shrima, please ask Ajahn your question.
2: With reverence and respect to Ajahn Sona, our kalyanamitra, please explain how. Skillful deeds based on loving kindness would be either punyakriya, where the aspiration is for material benefits and birth in heavenly realms, as against kusala kriya, the aspiration for ultimate re- release of suffering, nibbana or stages in the path. We often hear that uh, blessing like, may you be born into wealth, may you be born in heavenly realms and so on. How do we give meaning to loving kindness as
0: kusala Yeah, thank you. That's um, a nice uh, Buddha, Buddhist question. And some of the, uh, in the audience, I uh, just want to talk about a few of the terms that Srima mentioned there, punya and kusala. Punya is uh, more or less um, a positive results in the material dimension, money, money. Uh, clothing, shelter, all of the benefits uh, and these are said to be the the karmic benefits of generating loving-kindness. They also happen to be some of the benefits of practicing generosity. Now generosity might be motivated by loving-kindness but in the, from the Buddhist point of view more or less whatever you put into the universe bounces back and it and it bounces back in an amplified way. So even a small act of generosity can come back in multiple ways and if that generosity is accompanied by a a pure uh, heart an emotional a good positive emotion like loving kindness it's even further amplified so we have these two this question um loving kindness seems to function as almost the most it's kind of nuclear power it's 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 a fantastic amount of energy in this emotion and it has incredibly uh, desirable results in terms of of all of the material aspects and by the way I should also say that uh, one's face one's one's body and face is is beautified by this emotion it's very hard to actually be beautiful without having some some aspect of loving kindness, the, the micro expressions of the eyes and the subtle expressions of the face and how you hold yourself and how you conduct yourself and the tone of your voice is beautified by the presence of loving kindness. And even though you might have a straight nose and good teeth and so forth, if, if, you, if you don't have positive emotions, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, missing the element of beauty quite beyond that it said that future life. why is one born beautiful one why is one born beautiful and one why does beauty increase it is said to be because of the practice of loving kindness in previous lives so and we will see that in the benefits of loving kindness in this very life one's countenance is uh, serenity and ease is produced in the in the count the face the expression by this loving kindness, so it has a powerful effect, a shaping effect on every aspect of a, of a, a being's life, in the material dimension, and of course in the in the emotional dimension too. So now there's another aspect of loving-kindness, which uh, Srima refers to as kusala, kusala kriya. So, kusala is skillful, and so you should memorize this Pali word, skillful, and use it all the time. Um, kusala is, is skillful activities of body, speech, and mind, and the opposite is akusala, unskillful activities of body, speech, and mind. And the Buddha often uses this, this kind of set of skillful versus unskillful as a summary of the whole path. So this is a very useful term, skillful and unskillful. Uh, quite, quite beyond what we, we, in an ordinary language, we talk about uh, evil and good, or bad and good. Uh, in Buddhism, we refer to it as skills, the skills of goodness. And the lack of uh skill is is based on ignorance. We just simply don't know how to do things. So this kusala is uh moving us to the highest possible results. Beyond all of the beautiful results that we could have, both in the human realm and even beyond, into we, we talked about the heavenly realms, and and I'm I think I'm uh, emphasized in perhaps in one of the talks I'm not sure what I've given the talk but I said definitely talked about the fact that you cannot separate the idea of heaven from consciousness it doesn't mean that it's only a psychological uh, fantasy or a psychological condition but it means that uh, you can't be in a beautiful uh, Transcendent experience, except uh, if you're going along in, in, with consciousness. Your, your consciousness is is re- uh, ra- radiating and registering this experience. You fill this experience by consciousness. You Can, uh, can you imagine being depressed in heaven <laughs> or angry in heaven? So it wouldn't do you much good. It wouldn't be heaven. So. The outside dimension, the exterior dimension, and the interior dimension have to be as one. And uh, so, this uh, ultimate aim of loving kindness is to pave the road towards nibbana. And how does it do that? Loving kindness in itself cannot allow deliver you to this, this highest condition of nibbana. But, because loving-kindness reduces your anger and your greed, it allows your mind to be in a serene and lucid condition. And that serene and lucid condition is called increasing wisdom. And so when we stop a feedback cycle between greed, hatred, and its root, delusion. So the roots of greed and hatred, the root of greed and hatred is ignorance or delusion. Because of our ignorance and our delusion, anger and greed manifest because we don't know any better. It's a lack of skill, a lack of understanding, and it impedes our capacity to arrive at Unshakable well being and peace. And this is the nature of Nibbana. It has a nature. Nibbana, you hear this word, Nirvana, You know is the more common way of talking about it. Nirvana. What is, what is Nirvana? It's defined uh, in this life as seven factors of enlightenment, seven qualities of the mind. And they're all beautiful, positive qualities. And they can't arise, really, unless you have diminished ignorance and delusion. But how do you diminish ignorance and delusion? By cutting off its food source. What is the food source of ignorance and delusion? What is its, why, why does it persist? It's, it persists primarily through the emotions of anger and greed. When they're active they're actually feeding your, your misunderstanding about the world and about yourself, how things work, where happiness lies. Anger is giving you false messages. Greed is giving you false messages. And you end up with a map that doesn't represent reality that can't get you to happiness. You can't get on this, the map itself is wrong. That's what ignorance is—the wrong map—and you can't following that map. You can never get where you would like to go, and you have an intuition that you would like to you would like to go to freedom, ease, well-being, and happiness. But when you follow the map that anger and greed makes, and you can't get there. So loving kindness uh, reduces the energy and the fee, the food of ignorance and delusion. It reduces it and then it shrinks. Your ignorance and delusions shrink. It's like shrinking a tumor that's blocking your, your throat or your well-being. You're shrinking this until suddenly you start to feel like you can get some, some relief through your throat. You start to feel differently. You start to feel spacious open well this is a strange experience that's all you have to do so this is this this is the function of loving kindness it can't it can't in itself arrive at nirvana or nibbana there's a little information packet that is required for that and that is the clear seeing of impermanence unsatisfactory and selflessness, the in, insubstantiality of your idea of yourself, that the idea of self is, in, in it, is intrinsically an illusion, and the things that you look to stabilize and keep in your life are intrinsically impermanent and cannot be stabilized and kept, and so this that misinformation always frustrates you always ends in suffering now if we can undo that we can deliver ourselves from this inevitable types of recurrence of suffering so that's the function of loving kindness as kusala leading to nibbana but loving kindness is also leads to abundance in life could it lead to both could it lead both to profound uh, beauty and uh, wealth and all of these things and Nibbana? Yes, it can. You get dual benefits from loving kindness. One is that it, it bounces back and uh, that by the laws of karma, the, the positive wished-for results come back in the material dimension uh, and also very posit- the ultimate positive result in the realm of wisdom, the release from suffering through insight. So this is how it works.
1: Our next question is from Tandon S. from White Salmon, USA. Tandon, please ask Ajahn Sony your question.
2: Could it be that this pandemic has brought with it good conditions for the development of loving-kindness, During the past year, I have felt more and more easeful and more in the present, a quieter life that I think I may always have longed for. Truthfully, I've been very happy most of the time, even relieved. Naturally, I have known sorrow through it as well, much sadness, but even this strong aspect of it keeps pointing at the investigation of the true nature of reality, nurturing that reflection pondering I can't escape new feelings of insight into this and it's something I realized that I have lacked. Ending this year with the Birkin retreat feels so right and I am immersed in the wonderful sensation of kind of holding hands with all of these people spread across the planet. There's a sense of wonder and a beautiful warmth and appreciation fills my being Though you have spoken of it often and I have read about it in the suttas, I feel like I'm finally really understanding this treasure of spiritual friendship and it gladdens my heart. Will you expound a bit on this? Am I on the right fork of this path or perhaps a wee detour? Please advise me, your teachings are so clearly spoken and illustrated and understandable. I thank you, long persona.
0: Thank you Tandon for the uh, question. So yes, the the, the pandemic, which is um, quite a rare event, we haven't had one for more than a century, has really put a wrench into things, hasn't it? <laughs> Everybody's life has changed. <laughs> yeah. And we, now you can experience it two ways. One as a terrible frustration and so forth. But I, many of the spiritual people are kind of saying, you know, this is there's a good side to this. It slowed everything down, and if it's you're very fortunate if you have actually trained uh, in meditation and in the spiritual dimension because you are as if you had been training for a pandemic you know it's the it's like taking swimming lessons for a long time and then the tsunami comes <laughs> that happened actually i i was you remember the the this tsunami in um in sri lanka and thailand i was just to go entering into winter retreat i think it was 15 years ago or so and suddenly I got a call. I had looked forward to being in retreat. I got a call from the Sri Lankan and Thai Societies in Vancouver. Could I please come down there and give a talk and so forth to, uh, around the survivors and the raising funds for the tsunami victims. Uh, a quarter of a million people died in, in, a, in a space of a few minutes. So, you know, this is, you're talking about the entire death rate of the COVID in the United States died in about 10 minutes in that, pan, in that, uh, tsunami. So I went down there and we had a, we rented a big theater in Vancouver and many people came and some Thai monks chanted and so forth. And, uh, and we had some survivors from the tsunami and there were Canadians who were there and they got swept away in the tsunami and, and they, they survived. And one of them was a grade two teacher, and uh, she talked about how she survived. And she said, "Well, I I trained as a child, right up till my teens, as a as a competitive swimmer. And I it it grabbed me and swept me and held me under. But I I didn't panic. I held my breath. And then when I saw the light, I swam for the light, and I broke through the surface. And so." This is the case. I, it, She wouldn't have made it if she hadn't trained. <laughs> so this kind of pandemics and tsunamis and all of these events are always on the horizon. This is not the end of it. Sometimes they sweep everybody up, as in the tsunami. Sometimes they sweep worldwide, as in the pandemic. But... Even if you manage to escape some tsunamis and pandemics, there's one tsunami that you're not going to escape, that everybody is a brother and a sister in. We're all brothers and sisters facing the tsunami of death. No one escapes. We're all swept away in that. Also, pain pain experiences, sickness, aging. It must occur. To every single being, no one escapes this. So, this feeling is quite often hidden from us. We we forget this. We forget that the mortality rate is 100%. After about a hundred years, 100%. There's eight billion people on the planet right now. Divide eight billion by 100. See how your math is. It's about 80 million. 80 million people have, to, on average, have to die every year because the whole population, everybody who's born doesn't last much more than a hundred years. So you can figure that everybody on the planet, 8 billion people have to die one way or another. And this is, we're all holding hands in this. And we're all hopefully sharing some information about how how to deal with this situation. The pandemic sort of puts it in your face it's every every morning in the papers it's it's all through the news it's in the conversations the the death rate and of course it's all mixed in with uh uh underlying health conditions and aging so it goes through the the aged population first so you have what do you have there the primary thing that the buddha is always talking about illness aging death illness aging death so we're all born into this, and we should we be just terrified and distressed by this inevitable situation, or should we feel a sense of ease and loving-kindness, do what we can for each other during this time, uh, ch- exchanging gifts and helping each other. Uh, that's, that's the only sensible way to live in the face of illness, aging and death. What shall we do? What shall we do? And what we should do is practice loving-kindness. And we can't practice loving-kindness unless we keep our virtue, our, 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 the precepts, restraint, and practice acts of generosity and kindness. And so that is the simple answer to how do you deal with this pandemic And how can you be at peace in the midst of this pandemic? Because there's actually nothing special going on. It's a pandemic now, or it's a pandemic next week or next month or next year. One way or the other, we're all in the pandemic. And one day we check into the emergency ward and we don't come out. (laughs) And everybody, you know, everybody, all your relatives, all your pets everybody is under that condition it's just the only thing we don't know is when death is certain when is uncertain how shall we live in the meantime that's the only question how shall we live in the meantime and the buddha as a great teacher says here it is it's quite simple Cultivate these positive emotions, you'll have the maximum capa- of happiness in this life, and any if there are if there are condition uh, conditions which lead on that are positive, then it must be the best investment you ever made so yes a sense of of brotherhood and sisterhood in the midst of this is should arise naturally to the spiritual practitioner and you know what arises for those who don't practice just confusion frustration outrage Uh, they don't know how to deal with that so then they do unskillful things etc so that you have a choice you can live like that unskillfully or skillfully which would you like take your choice so that's a, a little reflection on the question by Tanden.
1: Ajahn, our next question is a combined one that we received. Can metta lead to the jhanas and enlightenment?
0: Metta can lead to the jhanas, and it's a beautiful uh, application of the. Uh, the jhanas are deep states of s- profound uh Unification of the mind. Uh one heartedness, uh unification of your emotional structure, which is uh extraordinary. And that should be cultivated. It's it's a great way to if you have the time, if you're not too distracted by your family and livelihood and these things, uh it's a great thing to endeavor towards and uh, but it does require considerable preoccupation with this it has great rewards but it demands great time and great cultivation and good instruction uh, by the way so this this 10-day meta retreat is has information in it that can help you uh get to the state of jhana and i gave a a jhana retreat, also, and it's online. It's on the Edge and Sona channel, and it's six talks on jhana. Most of the uh, information is around uh, breath meditation leading to jhana, but loving kindness also can lead to jhana. The first, second, and third uh, stages of jhana can be at- attained through loving kindness. Does it lead automatically to enlightenment? No it leads to the doorstep of enlightenment but you still need the key it's like you get all the way to this incredible mansion and you're right at the front door but the door's locked you still if you haven't got the key then you can't open that door But metta can get you all the way to the door the door lock uh unlocks with uh Three keys, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Insight into anicca, dukkha, anatta. Cle- this insight, which is often the word vipassana, etc., is often used. I really want to emphasize that all it means is you you see clearly. You see clearly the conditions of reality. That everything is transient, flowing. Eh... Uh, it it's there's nothing solid in it because of this transient flowing nature of reality you cannot stabilize it it's unsatisfactory you can't get a condition that it remains and is satisfactory indefinitely and in the solution to that is that the the one who is experiencing this which we s- sense, and intuit, and feel is our self. The very one, that kind of the self that travels through time unchanged is an illusion. It is not the case that we have somebody there behind our eyes that looked out of our eyes yesterday and will look out of our eyes tomorrow and is unchanged. That is an illusion that should be examined and when that sense of self is seen through, the anicca, the dukkha, anatta is seen through, the impermanence, the ins- unsatisfactoriness, and the nature of the self is seen through, then that's you're liberated. That is the arrival at nibbana. Nibbana is the is the cessation of suffering. Uh, so that it shouldn't be too mysterious. It's. Uh, it's the, the Buddha just makes a simple statement. It is the end of, end of suffering.
1: Yeah. Ajahn, our next question is from Mudita from Kamloops, Canada. Ajahn, when I do feel contentment in my simple life and all of a sudden question it when someone asks, what did you do today? I'm afraid of saying I did nothing, so how do I keep the content feeling of being alone and out there? without trying to be busy to almost hide my content feeling.
0: Yeah, we're in a, a world that continually interrogates us as what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Everybody's real busy doing 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 doing. And there's these little funny phrases like are you a human doing or a human being, you know? So we're trying to switch over from being from a human doing to a human being. <clears throat> And one of the delightful experiences of a human being is to simply not do anything. But it turns out it's a fine art, especially if you're raised in a society where everybody only gives you any value by what you do. So, And they give you they give you credit for doing useless things as well. If you just do a bunch of jumping jacks, you cannot you can be proud of yourself You say what were you up to i was jumping up and down for 20 minutes i was running ultra marathons you know humans end up doing desperate things i i i, I find ultra marathons desperate you know. <laughs> i i find the kind of hobbies that people have as well desperate like what are you doing down in the basement there <laughs> making elaborate Buildings out of playing cards, you know what is that all about? What are you trying to avoid? <laughs> um, well, I know why you do it because you're uncomfortable with your with being uh the what rushes up in human consciousness is like, what's the point of this? and even more, I am going to die, uh, and this makes me uncomfortable and anxious etc. So this is the existential realization. And much of the activities that people do are just avoidances of this uncomfortable feeling in, in their own presence without doing anything. So if you are one who is a human being, I congratulate you. And of course, you don't have to explain this to all of the human doings that are always asking you, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Because um, you'll get in trouble if you say, I'm being. I don't do, I just be. <laughs> I actually, I lived, uh, before I was a monk, I was a kind of a monk. <laughs> and I lived in a little shack in the middle of nowhere, because there was no other way to to. Spent all my time exploring what to what it is to be a human being if i didn't stop being a human doing, so I found a little shack for next to nothing and uh, and I lived there for some years and but because I was living without working and I just wanted all my time for meditation and so forth i I had to actually hitchhike to the nearest town to get groceries once in a while and uh You just got into a car with any stranger. And the shack was in the middle of nowhere. So standing on the side of a kind of an empty highway that one car an hour would pass. And so when somebody did stop, you got in. And one of the inevitable questions was, where do you live? And I would answer, in that shack over there. (laughs) And then they're Oh they i could see them thinking oh he's fallen on hard times <laughs> uh, what do you do was the next one. and i would always very clearly answer nothing <laughs> and then they would they would deal with that by saying oh i'm sure things will improve and you'll get a job <laughs> and i would always say i hope not <laughs> uh so some of them some of them could understand it, but others were quite offended by the entire idea that I had chosen not to work, not to do anything, that, but to live in a broken down shack in the middle of nowhere, and very deliberately trying to cultivate the fine art of doing nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that you're drunk all day or anything like that, but this means that it's a, it's a fine art and a delicate and difficult thing to do. So... Uh, one woman asked me after hearing my response of that. I, I lived in a broken down shack and I didn't do anything. She said, well, don't you want to make your mark in the world? And it was winter and there was snow everywhere. I said, Oh, don't you want to write your name in the snow? I'm like, what's the point? You know, tomorrow it'll be gone. If it's not gone tomorrow, it'll be gone next week. <laughs> what, what mark? You want me to write it in stone? <laughs> People, th- everything in this world is is passing away, so your name also will pass away even if you write it in stone. <clears throat> you can't make a mark in this world. It's, uh, it's made out of light. The world is made out of thickened light. Uh, I'm quoting Emerson. <laughs> this world is nothing but thick light. Anyway, That is the fine art. Now you may not want to be as combative as I was. I was 30 at the time and I thought, well, I'm living alone here, but at least I can teach or challenge a few human doings on the way and maybe it'll make some effect on them. But you may not want to be so gracious as to challenge them and say, why do you ask me what I do? Who cares? (laughs) Yeah, anyway, get comfortable Mudita with being a human being. And not having to justify the fact. Yes.
1: Ajahn, our next question is from Rob B. in Portsmouth, United Kingdom. Dear Ajahn, it seems that in general my mind is on automatic and I don't really have much control on how it generates emotions based on what I think, see, or hear. Can you talk about how much we need to put into metta practice to overcome these automatic reactions?
0: a lot <laughs> a lot because that is the nature of uh the ordinary person they they it never occurs to them that they have any control over this or that they're choosing their emotions whether you might think that these things are rising spontaneously or or just arise by themselves but actually no um they have conditions nothing arises for without preconditions and uh, you know, bubbling up with sadness or nostalgia or joy and so forth. This is the way people experience this. They're, that's a pretty dangerous way to live, that you're helplessly... You don't know what's coming next. It's, uh, you're being surprised by your own mind all the time. This is not a good condition to be in. So we are systematically sitting down and say, Okay, enough of this. I, I want to choose how I feel. And I want to be able to maintain that. So that's, a, that's quite a challenge, by the way. And that's the shocking truth that comes to you when you go to a meditation retreat. People go in there and realize, oh my goodness, why didn't anybody tell me I was crazy? <laughs> you will find out sitting still in a beautiful, quiet, empty room that your mind is crazy. And you just had not noticed it because you thought that the traffic was crazy, that the weather was crazy, that the food was bad or something like that. You always imagine there there's a cause, an external cause for the way you feel. But actually, no, we can take away all the external causes, put you in a soundproof room and all of those things will come up. You will be sad and then you'll be happy and then you'll be bored and then you'll be amused and on and on and this is flooding out of you but you can get a you can re- restructure those uh those causes you can put in new causes and you will get new results and that's that's the meditator's um determination and that's their real work in life so you know you go to work you make your money and everything but that's not your real work there is real work in this life and that is to train the mind And the Buddha is on and on and on about this. Maybe Buddhism is the only religion and philosophy that absolutely insists that it's up to you and it can be done and you must train yourself. And you train yourself relentlessly like an Olympic athlete. Olympic athletes waste their life. They should be training their mind, not their bodies. So... The really good use of your time is to ceaselessly restructure that, that mind of yours. Then you will have something that you can carry with you that are, is not dependent on uh, the frivolous, random, uh, external ex- situations that you have. So this is a full-time job. Frustration sometimes. And sometimes a little voice comes up and says, how come I have to do this and nobody else has to? It's like the kid that has to play, practice the violin in the basement. Well, all the other kids go out and play baseball. But in the end, he can play the violin. <laughs> but you, you'll be able to play something much better than the violin. You'll be able to play your own emotions, your own mind. And the kids that were all messing around outside, throwing balls around, will be at the mercy of their absolute madness and uncontrolled mind. So that's your choice.
1: Our next question is from Aidan D. in Victoria, Canada. Hello, Ajahn. Could you please explain what Vande means from the Budang Bande chant oh, that yes. you gave this morning?
0: Yes, yes. Budang, Budang, Budahang, Vande. Damahang, Dhamahang, Ndamahang, Vande. So this is Vande. Is uh, I uh, pay homage to the Buddha. So you you hear the words buddhang, that means Buddha, but then I say Buddha Hung, mean I. And then I say Vande, uh, appreciate, remember, hold in high regard, the Buddha. So Buddha. buddha ah mi bande I respect the Buddha. I respect the Dhamma, I respect the Sangha. And that's just a little melody that's set to that, so it kind of a soothing kind of uh, thing, and you, you circle on that. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha are called the three jewels in Buddhism. And uh, they're <clears throat> they, they work together in an, in, a, in an amazing way and have survived uh, 25 centuries. Um, and so this is a kind of a a recollection, an easy one. Now, I I chose these chants that I do during this retreat, is trying to make them the either full of meaningful content, or just simply helping your mind uh, relax to go into the state of loving kindness. So I I chose some of the, some of the chants are just very simple, a few words that I just repeat with a little melody to them, and others are are fully um, expounded in English, like the Karaniya Sutta, the discourse on loving-kindness and the 11 benefits of loving-kindness. I I do make sure that I read them out completely and define every single word. So there's information in the chanting, and there's also a sense of uh, appreciation and emotional connection with the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And I, I, I take this to retreat. So I do this. Budang, 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 one day. And a lot of people ask me, when, what is it? Budang one day? <clears throat> budang Monday? Is it Monday? Or one day? I said it's nothing to do with one day. It's one day, one day. The V is one day. <laughs> so I'm glad you asked about that. Um, and feel free to uh, learn the learn the tune and chant it to yourself. It's a nice little thing you can just absorb and it gives you a f- three three or four words in, uh, in Pali uh, as well. Actually, s- six words. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, I, respect. <laughs> uh, five words. <laughs> um, so I think we will leave it at that for today.